3, verses 22 to 30. But in order to, uh, to keep the context, I'll read the entirety of John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came, by, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be seen clearly that his deeds have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and, all, and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. I want to ask you this morning, what is your purpose in life? What do you live for? Family, friends, finances, fun? Rick Warren begins his infamous book, The Purpose Driven Life, really well. The first sentence reads, it's not about you. Unfortunately, most of the rest of the book then goes on to focus on you. But in that first statement, he's right. It's not about you. So how will you be remembered when you die? What do you want your legacy to be? Will you be known as a scholar, hard worker, skilled craftsman, devoted parent? All of, those good, all of those things are good things, but apart from Jesus Christ, they're all meaningless. They have no eternal value. Most people coast through life with no thought at all for what they're going to leave behind. They have no thought at all about the fact that, that they should be serving God while they're alive because they have been given the gift of life. Most people are content to get up, go to work, come home, plop down in front of the TV and fall into bed and then do the same thing over again the next day. They do this day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out until their life comes to an end. Now one day, unless the Lord tarries, all of us are going to die. What do you want your epitaph to read? Maybe you haven't thought very much about your epitaph, and I don't think it's really a morbid thought that, that I have. Um, in fact, I've given it a fair bit of thought. And this might seem odd to you, but, but one of, well, in fact, probably the first conversation that, that Jane and I had on the phone, um, this issue came up, our epitaphs. And Jane said that hers was, knowing her made me want to know her God. And mine is similar, he glorified God. Now, of course, we know that apart from the grace of God, we have no hope of ever living, living up to those epitaphs. But nonetheless, it's our desire to do so. And I think that the way that we want, the way that we consider our death and how we will be remembered helps us to live the way we should live in this life. So this morning in John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30, we're going to hear the testimony of somebody who did glorify God. We're going to read about somebody who, if you knew him, would have made you want to know his God. The Apostle John records Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in verses 1 to 15. And even though most red-letter Bibles continue the, verse, the, verses of, the words of Jesus all the way uh, in red, all the way down to verse 21, it's most likely that verses 15 to 21 are actually John's commentary on what is, has come before. But in reality, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. We need to remember that it's, it's all the Word of God. For a red-letter Bible to be consistent, every letter in the Bible should be read. With verse 22, the Apostle John returns again to the witness of John the Baptist. And here in verses 22 to 33, his purpose is to bear witness to one who bore witness to Christ. 
We first met John the Baptist back in John chapter 1. In verses 6 to 8, there we read, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then in verses 19 to 36, John had a run-in with some men who were sent by the Pharisees to question him. They didn't understand who he was or why he'd come. I explained several weeks ago that John knew his role, so he didn't reply on the son of Zechariah the priest and Elizabeth. He didn't reply on the Baptist, even though he was. He didn't reply on the one who came in the spirit of Elijah, even though he was. He didn't reply, I'm a prophet, even though he was. When they asked him, why then are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor a prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So John the Baptist found his identity in the one that he served. He existed for Jesus. He existed to prepare the way for him and to bear witness to him. And that's what all of his baptisms were about. That's why he was baptizing. But it might seem strange then in our passage this morning that John was continuing to baptize after the coming of Jesus. Jesus here had had already begun his, his public ministry. John seemingly would have fulfilled his purpose if he was there to point to Jesus and then he baptized Jesus in order to fulfill all things, you would have thought that, naturally you would think that, that, the, that the work of John was done. That he didn't need to keep ministering in that way. He didn't need to keep baptizing. But that's precisely what was going on in this passage. And it led to another perfect opportunity for John to bear witness to Jesus. So this morning we're going to see that there were two baptisms but only one message from verses 22 to 26. That there was one messenger and one Messiah in verses 27 to 29. And then finally, we're going to see subtraction and multiplication in verse 30. First of all, two baptisms, but one message. In verse 22, we find out that after Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside performing baptisms. And there in verse 23, we see that, that John was baptizing too. The people were still coming him to be baptized. Now, we don't know exactly where this was, but water there was abundant. In fact, the word anon is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew word meaning springs. And the name Salim is also interesting. It's a translation, a transliteration of the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. John then includes a parenthetical statement in verse 24 that, that John had not yet been put into prison. Now, the apostle doesn't regard, record the details here surrounding his imprisonment and murder of, by, of John the Baptist by Herod because, um, because John had been preaching against Herod, that that Herod should not marry his brother's wife. And so Herod arrested arrested John the Baptist and put him in in prison. But the apostle here doesn't give details surrounding this because this really has nothing to do with what he wants to say. His purpose in this passage is to show how John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. 
So any, any real significant discussion about what happened later on with, with John the Baptist really would have been irrelevant and would have distracted his readers from the main point. He was wanting to demonstrate here that John the Baptist and Jesus ministered at the same time. But the Synoptic Gospels really don't lead us to that conclusion. John, John doesn't make this statement to, as, as D.A. Carson comments, state the obvious. Obviously, John wasn't able to, to continue his baptisms once he was in prison. So that's not the point of, of including that. But to explain that what is related here, and probably in fact all of chapters 2 to 4, take place earlier than any ministry of Jesus that is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. In other words, in Mark 1.14, immediately after Mark's account of the baptism of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness, Mark writes, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The other synoptic gospels actually make the same point. They don't include any of these events here from, from John chapter 2 to chapter 4. They don't include the turning of water to wine, or the cleansing of the temple, or Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, or with a Samaritan woman in chapter 4. All of these happened between Mark 1.13 and Mark 1.14. So this parenthetical time marker shows that, that these events that happened early in the ministry of Jesus and his account of the overlap between the ministry of Jesus and that of the Baptist does not contradict the Synoptic Gospels. John is saying this to include here that to show that, that what he's saying doesn't disagree with the Synoptic Gospels. John's Gospel is written much later than the rest of the Synoptic Gospels. And so it's very likely that, that a lot of this material was already in circulation. So if he didn't include this, it could have been people could have drawn the conclusion that, well, well, maybe what John taught here really doesn't line up with the Synoptic Gospels. And, and we need to remember here that, as I said earlier, it's all the Word of God. The way we measure truth is by measuring Scripture with Scripture. So Scripture never contradicts itself. This passage shows clearly that the ministry of Jesus and that of John were concurrent. They were both baptizing, or well, to be more accurate, Jesus himself wasn't baptizing. It was his disciples that were doing the baptizing. We'll see this shortly in John 4.2. But in verse 25, we read that a discussion arose between some of the disciples of John and a Jew over purification. Now, it's likely that, that, questions, that are, the questions that arose here had to do with, with how baptism related to the earlier uh, traditions or rituals of Jewish purification. Remember, the Pharisees had added to the law, and they had purification laws for everything. They would cleanse their bodies, they would cleanse their hands, they would cleanse their bowls, but they couldn't cleanse their hearts. They cleansed the outside of the cups, but they left the inside full of greed and wickedness, ignoring the fact that he who made the outside made the inside also. Luke 11, 39 and 40. They should have first cleansed the inside, then the outside would have been clean too. Matthew 23, 26. It's easy to do outward things. It's easy to, to perform rituals as though that, that would, would earn us points with God. 
It's easy to obey outwardly. But what has to happen is there has to be a new heart. Remember that repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change in behavior. We don't want to put the, we can't put the cart before the horse and change our behavior in order to change our hearts. The change in heart always comes first. That's why John's message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3 2. So the discussion of these things naturally led to the question of competition between Jesus and John on the part of his disciples. Jesus here had the same message. He said the same thing as John. In Matthew 4.17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now some of John's disciples didn't get it, so they came to John in verse 26 and, and said that, that as though there was, was some sort of a, of a baptism competition, he said, Rabbi, they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, the one to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now again, they're not saying literally that, that all, every single man, woman, and child was going to him, but in their distress, they were saying, look, like, look at all these people going to Jesus. Why aren't more people coming to you? But in fact, John 4.1 records that, that the disciples of Jesus were actually baptizing more than John was baptizing. And these disciples here, these disciples of John are, are saying it's as though, as though John did Jesus a favor by witnessing to him. They're saying something like, look, teacher, this, was this guy that you were speaking about, you were baptizing first. Now he's doing it too. Matthew Henry says it was as if Jesus owed all of his reputation to the honorable character that John gave of him. But they completely missed the point. John and Jesus had the same message, but I've told you this before, their meaning was completely different. While John was pointing at Jesus when he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus was pointing to himself. And this is what the baptisms were meant to point to. Matthew Henry words it well. Christ's baptism was not in the least an impeachment, but indeed the greatest improvement of John's baptism, which was but to lead the way to Christ's. So whereas John's baptism was one of preparation, a baptism of repentance, symbolic of an inward washing and forgiveness of sins, the baptism of Jesus was much, much deeper. It would come to symbolize our union with Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection, although his disciples wouldn't have fully understood that prior to the events of Calvary. So the baptism of John was fading just as the baptism of Jesus was growing. Now, although John's baptism was a precursor to that of Jesus and pointed to it, they were as different as night and day. John baptized with water, but Jesus baptized with the Spirit. John commanded his disciples in Matthew 28 to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, something that was completely unknown in John's baptism. Now, it seems that John's pattern of baptism continued later on, even after the resurrection. Read in, in Acts chapter 19 that Paul found some disciples in Ephesus who hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. 
And they testified that they had only been baptized into John's baptism. So Paul told them, John baptized with the baptism of, of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. So then Paul baptized them in the name of Jesus, and they received the Holy Spirit. So clearly, John's baptism had been superseded. That baptism was not enough. They had to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, it came after repentance, but it's a baptism of union in the part of a believer into Christ. It's, it's an outward picture of what has happened in their heart. But these disciples of John here thought it was a competition. They were offended because they, they saw Jesus as competing with their leader. But in verses 27 to 29, John set them straight, telling them that, that, that there was one messenger and one Messiah. One messenger and one Messiah. He answered them in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So what does he have in mind here? John's baptism, Jesus' baptism, salvation? They're all true because Jesus taught in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So apart, but apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't do anything of eternal significance apart from God's work in our hearts. But in this context, John the Baptist has something more specific in mind. He's talking here about his calling. Hendrickson says, The herald of Christ meant to say that to everyone God has assigned a place in his eternal plan, and that he, the Baptist, has no right to lay any claim to an honor which has not been given him from heaven. Kostenberger says similarly, John here tells his disciples that he must neither exceed the calling he received from God, nor compare himself with others. So John here is, is talking about his role, the role that God has given him in salvation history. He's been given a specific role, that of messenger. But I wonder, have you ever considered your role in salvation history? Have you thought about what you have been given from heaven? We've all been given talents from God in order to serve in the church, talents for which we will all give an account. So I need to ask, are you working to develop those talents in order that you may bear more fruit for God's glory? God has ordained that you would live at a specific time, at this specific time, in this specific place, in this specific church, for a specific reason. Have you prayerfully considered what that reason might be? How are you helping Christ to build his church? Paul taught this powerfully in 1 Corinthians 12 when he was using the, the metaphor of a human body. So please uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Paul speaks here of the role of different parts of the body, of, of hands and feet and eyes and ears, and the foolishness of comparing the role of one with the role of another because all of the parts are indispensable. They all work together, at least they're supposed to. He says in verse 27, 
Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Beloved, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So you have a particular role, something that God has called you to do in order to serve him in this church. You are a part of the puzzle that God is putting together for his glory. But if you do have a particular role, you don't boast about it or seek to go beyond your role, to go beyond the gifts that God has, has given or to go beyond the calling that God has in your life. In 1 Corinthians 4.7, Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? If you have received it, why then do you boast as if you did not receive it? Beloved, there's no room for pride. We are to serve in the strength that God provides. And in our service, it's, it's not as though we're, 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 again, earning points with God or putting God in our debt. Because whenever we serve, it's actually God who's doing the work. We talked on, on Friday from 1 Corinthians 15 about, about Paul saying how he worked harder than any of them. Paul was saying there that he worked harder than any of the rest of the apostles. Now, if that statement was there on its own, it would be the height of arrogance. But he says, he goes on to say, it was not me who worked, but the grace of God working in me. So whenever we do any work, it's God who's doing it. And he's doing it for his glory. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So John here in our passage had been signed, assigned one ministry, and Jesus had been assigned quite a different ministry. The Baptist continues in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John had testified that he was not the Christ in John 1.20. He had come as a messenger in fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi 3.1 to prepare the way of the Lord. And in fulfillment of Isaiah 43, he was the one, he was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight a desert, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now John's disciples had spoken of the value of John's witness, and it was an important witness, but Jesus didn't need John's witness. Turn, please, to John chapter 5. Jesus taught in verses 33 to 36. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these to, to you so that you may be saved. He, that's John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you're willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. And he goes on to explain in verse 36 that his works, which are given to him by the Father, bear witness that he's been sent by the Father. And then in verse 37, he declares that the Father himself has borne witness about him. And then in verse 39, he declares that the scriptures bear witness about him. So he didn't need the witness of John. But although there are great similarities between John and Jesus, the disparity between them was infinite. 
There's an infinite disparity between their levels of authority. John spoke the word of God with authority. Jesus is the word of God. There's an infinite disparity between their missions. John prepared the people for the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. John is the best man, was the best man. Jesus is the bridegroom. In verse 29, John says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, this this image of of Christ and the church, of a a bride and a bridegroom, is, is common throughout Scripture. And it is ultimately the picture, the real reason for marriage. Paul teaches that in Ephesians 32, that the mystery of marriage is that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, this relationship is highlighted throughout the Bible, but I think most beautifully in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. See again there that it's been given to them to clothe themselves. That these righteous deeds are given to them. So John here is is really the best man, but he was just a man. Jesus taught in Matthew 11.11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, the the best man is the modern equivalent of this ancient tradition. The best man's role at the wedding is to serve and to help the groom, attending to to the groom, attending to details at the wedding. Don Carson says that the best man found his greatest joy in watching the ceremony proceed without a problem and in knowing that the groom and his bride were being united with great rejoicing. Some of you would have met uh, Jason Cashel when Jane and I got married this summer. He pastors a church really quite similar to this one in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, he was my care group leader when I lived in Louisville at, at my church there. Um, and he also performed our pre-engagement and our premarital counseling. And there he was at our wedding standing next to me. Now imagine the, the, the ridiculousness of Jason standing there being jealous that it wasn't him who was marrying Jane instead of me. It, it's a ridiculous analogy. But far more ridiculous is the thought here of, of John being jealous that Jesus was marrying his bride. At, at our wedding this, this summer, it's a funny story I just want to share with you. Uh, later on in the, in the reception, there was, uh, we were trying to find um, Jason uh, in order to, for him to do his, his best man speech, and, and he was, was nowhere to be found. But we had seen earlier uh, a few people kind of conspiring in the, in the corner. And, and to be honest, I was a little bit nervous about what, uh, if there was some practical joke that they're about to play. But uh, it, we didn't find out until, until months later what had really happened. 
that uh, that Jason had, had in order to to help me, he had he had taken my my car keys, and then somehow between the wedding and the reception, I had actually lost had lost the keys, and so you can imagine wanting to leave at the end of of the reception and and not having not having the keys being stranded there in Fillmore uh, without any way to, uh, to, to get to the place where we we're going to begin our honeymoon. And so, so Jason told, told us afterwards he was panicking. And he looked everywhere. Now, thankfully, the, the, keys, did, the keys did turn up. But, but his, his panic and his, his concern over that just highlighted the, the joy that he wanted us to experience. That he was he was rejoicing. In fact, he told us that that he was the the he had never been happier for a wedding than he was for his own wedding. And so he had great rejoicing in celebrating with us, and that made our joy more full as we were celebrating with with Jason and his and his wife Casey and with with so many beloved friends and family. It actually increased our joy. And that's the picture here that, that, that John presents. His joy is full because he is, is doing what he was meant to do. And beloved, that's true of us, that, that our joy is the most full when we are doing what we were meant to do. So John could say in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. So finally, we see here subtraction and multiplication. John was the greatest born among men, but again, he was just a man. He had said that he was not even worthy to carry the sandals of Jesus. John must fade into the background before the Messiah. John said that Jesus must increase, must increase. It's not optional. There's no chance that anything else would have happened besides the increase of the Son of God. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2.10. This fact is more sure than the rising of the sun tomorrow. The glorification of Christ is more sure that than that tomorrow morning the sun is going to rise and drive away the dark of night. Then by necessity, John must fade into the background just as the moon fades, the light of the moon fades as the sun rises. The moon shines brightly against a dark night sky, but it has no light of its own. It is reflecting the light of the sun. Once the sun rises, although the moon can still be visible in the sky, it, it is pale in comparison to the brightness of the sun. And that, that is, was true of John, and it is true of us. That our light must fade before the, lightness, before the brightness of Christ. But there was going to come a time that even John wasn't certain even though John, John 3.30 presents the, the last words we hear, these glorious words that, that, that Christ would, would increase, must increase, and he must decrease. 
These are the last words that we hear from John before his imprisonment in Matthew 11.3. When he, when he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This man who had made such a bold statement that Jesus is the Christ, there were, when he's imprisoned, it, it, it seems as his, his circumstances caused him to question. And there seemed to be a rebuke in the reply of Jesus in Matthew 11, verses 4 to 6. Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. So we need to ask you this morning, are you offended by Jesus? Maybe the circumstances of your life have called, you, have called into question in your mind his love and his wisdom and his sovereignty. Maybe you're afraid to stand up for truth because of what people will think of you or because of what will happen to you. But if you understand that your purpose is to point to Jesus, just as it was for John, that everything you do is meant to point to him, then it doesn't matter what circumstances you face. That in the midst of those circumstances, you can and you will, you must point to Jesus. Because your light the light that you shine will be a reflection of his light shining on you. The circumstances of your life will change from day to day. You are going to face illness. You're going to face the death of those who you love. You're going to face tragedy and trial in this life. But remember, remember that in Christ, we have the best of all circumstances. Because God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So as we preach this to ourselves, as we preach the gospel to ourselves in the midst of whatever circumstances we face, whether it's joy or trials, whether it's riches or poverty, whether it's, it's rejoicing in a group or being alone, you see those as opportunities to witness to Christ. And as you rely on his strength in you, his glory will increase. Jesus will increase and you will decrease. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So are you living out your purpose? Are you fading into the background before your Messiah? Remember what we talked about last week, that the wicked don't want their, to draw attention to themselves because the, the light exposes that their dark works are evil. But the person who practices truth wants his deeds exposed because the works draw attention away from him, and they draw attention to Jesus Christ, giving glory to him. Again, do your deeds give glory to God? 
Let's pray together.